A temptation has been there for all of us at some point in our teaching. Venting about our students, setting things up in our classrooms to make sure we maximize our already present power. Today, I talk with Kevin Gannon about ways to respect our students in our teaching. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. This is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to increase our personal productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. I'm happy today to be welcoming to the program Kevin Gannon. He's a professor of history and the director of the Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning at Grandview University in Iowa. And he describes himself as a total geek. And and Kevin, if you wouldn't mind sharing, there are three ways in which you are a geek. I am a geek for history, I'm a geek for teaching, and I'm a geek for technology and probably some other things as well. But <laughs> You know, I, I, I geek regularly. And you also talk about in your bio that you love thriving on experimentation and thumbing your nose at convention. What is a way in your teaching, just one way, the first random one that pops into your mind at which you thumb your nose at convention? Well, I, my own personal appearance, probably I'm heavily tattooed and um, I, I dress professionally, you know, shirt and tie in the classroom, but I don't look like what my students expect a college professor, you know, at least in their mind to look like. I tend to run a pretty free-flowing, give and take sort of classroom, and a lot of times I come in with a broad idea, but then improvise or allow the students to improvise as well. So I think giving up control in a lot of ways makes me a little bit more unconventional, perhaps. When I go visit your website, which, by the way, to people listening, this is episode 52. So you can find the links to all of the things that Kevin and I talk about at teachinginhighered.com slash 52. And including there will be Kevin's bio and you're holding some sort of creature in your bio. Can you tell us about that? <laughs> <laughs> we had a an animal, a traveling animal exhibit uh, visit our campus. Uh, it was a wilderness preserve uh, organization um, who go to college campuses in the Midwest and bring, you know, exotic animals um, and sort of spread the word about conservancy with students. Uh, so it's a few biologists that bring them around. And I'm actually holding uh, a very small alligator, um, which, you know, he appeared to be pretty nonplussed by the whole situation. He'd been there before, um, but it was kind of cool. So if I'm if my face looks funny in the in the picture, it's because the gentleman right before he handed me this this reptile said, oh, by the way, he might pee on you. And if he does, that's, you know, just brush it off. And that's you know, right as you're about to get the hand off. That's not exactly what you want to hear. So if I look a little bit bemused in the photograph, that's why. I love having that background. Of course, now I'm going to have to go back and look at it. So I can yeah, experience the very still. <laughs> we don't want that pee on us, especially if you, right. if you have to go on the rest of the day and you didn't bring a change of clothes with you. In the that's car that was the thought running through my head. Exactly. <laughs> well, we it's funny because the last couple interviews I've done, I haven't necessarily planned things this way. Sometimes we talk about failures in our teaching at the end of the episodes because that's just something we can learn so much. I feel like we could learn more from our failures than we can our successes. At least I learn quicker, I hope, 
that way. Yeah, but I, I, I agree. I agree. I want to start out with your failures. And I feel like it's kind of a strange place to start. But tell no, me, I do it a lot. I'm really good at it. So that's fine. Tell me about a time when you have failed in terms of venting about your students and, and kind of how that changed things for you. Well, you know, when I first started teaching, um, I was teaching my own courses as a PhD student. Um, I had a field in an area, Latin American history, where we had some faculty leave and demand for courses. So I was in the position where I got to offer some stuff uh, on my own, maybe a little more quickly uh, than I would have um, as a PhD student normally. And so I was teaching a course where, you know, with Latin American history, a lot of college students in the United States come in with little to no background knowledge of the area whatsoever. It's just not taught in the high schools. And and so I would get some, you know, fairly interesting and creative interpretations of the material on the exams. Um, and I kind of kept a running list of them, you know, things I've learned teaching Latin American history to freshmen and, you know, just all sorts of, you know, the, the typical howlers in a history exam that you might get. And, um, but I, I would kind of post them. Um, this was before Facebook really became big. So I actually kept a list in a notebook and I'd kind of post them on a bulletin board next to my mailbox anonymously, of course. But, you know, it was kind of fun to, for everybody to sort of look, oh, my gosh, and kind of roll our eyes. Um, and so I sort of kept doing that for several years. You know, I would post on Facebook uh, some of the some of the ways in which students misanswered questions on exams and you know, from curious phrasing to just outright fabrications. Um, and there's been some books that have been, you know, there's one called Non-Campus Mentis, where a history professor has collected, you know, 20 years worth of student-created history. And they're fairly amusing. But I realized that, you know, as one semester I was posting this stuff on Facebook. And, you know, I thought it was my way of venting. But, but it sort of hit me really weird. You know, why, why was I really doing that? And if a lot of my students, you know, had these these howlers and, you know, errors of fact and all these things, you know, didn't that really say something about me in the class? Did I really want to be broadcasting that, you know, hey, my results are like this? Um, so, I, you know, it caused me to kind of take a step back and realize that, you know, while it may have been a way to vent and maybe go for some cheap laughs, that I was really kind of taking advantage of a situation that were I in the student's place, uh, I don't think I would have been very happy about it. And it might have, you know, I think it could have, uh, in terms of my own student career, could have done a lot of damage uh, for me and my willingness to take risks uh, and, and challenge myself in class. I've had a similar experience where I start to think, what does that say about me and, and my teaching? And then it, it kind of goes from being something that, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you've got a lot of accolades and a lot of that, that, you know, how funny you are and it's sort of building up your ego that way. And then, and then mm -hmm. there's sort of the, when it comes back around and sort of hits you in the face, then there's the embarrassment almost of it that, oh gosh, that doesn't necessarily say a good thing about me or the students I teach or, or, or whatever that, that is that, what does that say about my results? So it's, it's tough though, because some of it, I mean, let's, let's be candid. I'm sure that still now we both see things that are absolutely hysterical. And so where do you go? Yeah. Where do you go now? What's your outlet? Or when you are just right. so disappointed and, and you think, gosh, I can't care more than you care or, or whatever. Where do you go for your source of that venting? Because you do talk about in your post that it isn't that you don't vent anymore. It's that it's just mm -hmm. somewhere else. Where do you think is the right place for us to express those both hysterical things you got to tell someone right. and then the things that are really agonizing as a teacher? Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's really important, you know, with any 
faculty situation that you have your close friends, your support group, your colleagues that when you're conversing, you know, either on or off campus, that it's a safe space um, because we do need that outlet and we do need to, whether it's just vent about something or wrestle through some more challenging issues um, that we're facing either in our own career in the classrooms, you know, there needs to be that space where we can, you know, have some colleagues, have some friends that we trust, faculty, staff. Um, and I'm fortunate to have a group like that where, you know, we can sort of throw anything out there and it stays there because we all understand that that's the space that maybe it's more appropriate in something like, you know, oh, my God, can you believe what these students did? Um, you know, you bring up the point about, you know, the ego boost. Uh, it's you know, social media, when you put that up there on Facebook and you get all these likes and everybody's putting emoticons with smiley faces and like, you know, it's kind of addictive, you know, it builds you up. It, you, know, you say, well, I'm taking something crappy that happened in class and now I'm getting some laughs out of it and there's a silver lining. But, but again, that's, you know, I've come to realize that's not the appropriate space. Um, in fact, that's a very bad space uh, to, to be putting that sort of stuff out there. And to be clear, I also read in your blog that, by, by the way, I'll be posting all the blog posts that I'm referencing. I've really enjoyed Kevin's blog throughout. I, I don't want, I guess I probably discovered it maybe six months ago, but I know you've been blogging for longer than that. Uh, it's absolutely a wonderful blog. So I posted the the ones well, I you. drew from to invite him as our guest today. So the um, the one I recall, you you even specify, it isn't like you don't put this stuff on Facebook anymore because your students are on Facebook because you, you have decided for yourself not to friend students. So it's because right. I think some people, I shouldn't say I think, I know some people say, well, it's okay for me to do it on Facebook because my students aren't on Facebook. I don't, or the people I'm talking about aren't on Facebook. So it's mm -hmm. okay to do it there. Why would you still say that's not okay, at least with you? Well, I think for me, it's not so much that students might see it, but it's the effect that it has on me and my outlook, mm -hmm. you know, continually engaging in that. Um, you know, I'm a, I mentioned in that same piece, you know, when I was in graduate school, there was another PhD student teaching his own courses as well. And he would come into the grad lounge after being done and just unload. Oh, my students are awful. This is what they think. They're horrible. They're stupid. They can't write. I mean, just sort of, and we'd all sort of stare at him you know, just kind of stunned, like, man, you really hate these people. You know, it was really, it got to the point where it was uncomfortable a couple of times. And, you know, if you go into the classroom with your weapons up like that, I just don't think you can be an effective teacher. I know I couldn't, you know, I can't go in already expecting silliness or failure or them not to get it. And so if I'm regularly reinforcing that own opinion in my, or my own opinion um, in the ways that I engage with social media and friends, uh, then, you know, the battle's already over. You know, I've, I've gone into the classroom. I'm not going to be able to accomplish what I want to accomplish. Daniel Goleman in Social Intelligence, The New Science of Human Relationships, talks about that very thing, the contagious nature of our conversations and our dialogue. And it's almost, I don't want to oversimplify his work because it's groundbreaking, but it's the idea that I come and start venting to you and then I've sort of left some, it's like the, it's the pig pen character in, in Charlie Brown. It's <laughs> kind right, of carrying exactly. this little cloud. Metaphor. Only it's if pig pen left some of his dust behind and like everybody started mm -hmm. to have their own little cloud of the the mess above them. Yeah, it becomes a question, how much of this do you really want to carry around all the time? And I realized that, you know, I was carrying a lot of this stuff without realizing it. And once you put it down, you know, and, and that's a very intentional act, I think, to, to put that kind of stuff down and sort of reboot and, and reapproach things, it can be really freeing 
just for me as a teacher, the, my favorite quote is from Abraham Maslow, who, who says that if you t- if you if the only tool you have is a hammer, you tend to see every problem as a nail. And I use tools as a metaphor a lot. I tell my students, you know, I want to put tools in your toolbox so you can build what you need. So that quote really appeals to me. If I'm just going around carrying a big old hammer, you know, what am I going to build? That's sort of the place that I got to in, in, in this process, you know, sort of reflecting on, you know, what was I really doing and, you know, this larger culture of, you know, student shaming. And some of it gets pretty, pretty over the top. And it's just a, it's a pretty negative space. And I can't stay in that space for very long. Before we leave the subject of shaming and onto something more cheerful like failure, before we leave right. there, <laughs> you, you do actually recommend that we do a little bit of shaming in a particular area. So while we shouldn't be shaming our students, who do you advocate that we should be doing a little more shaming of? This actually, I've been doing a lot of thinking about this lately, so I'm glad that you asked that question. I think a lot of the student shaming that we do as faculty, you know, when we're just sort of raging against how, you know, kids these days don't learn and nobody reads and, you know, and yes, our students are pulled in a lot of different directions, maybe more than they have been in the past. I don't think they're necessarily, I'm a historian, so I've seen this, right? I, I don't think that faculty complaint about students is anything new. But, you know, our students are working. They tend to be working more. Uh, The student body of today is much more diverse, both demographically, socioeconomically than it was a generation ago. And certainly the pressures that we face as faculty with kind of the neoliberal attacks on higher education. I mean, look at what's going on in North Carolina and Louisiana and especially Wisconsin. We are squeezed in a number of different ways. And sometimes it's easy because we feel enormous pressure. Faculty workload, I don't think, has ever been more difficult. And the circumstances in which we're asked to do it, especially for those of us who are contingent or non-tenure track faculty, i.e. the majority, you know, there's so much pressure uh, that we tend to, to take that out on students, I think, in a lot of ways without really thinking about it. When the real targets are, you know, who are creating these conditions, let's Let's look at elected officials. Um, let's look at university administrators. Let's look at people with power and money who are making decisions that are creating a circumstance that really undermines the very ideal of higher education in a democratic society. Feeling squeezed as faculty like that, we may punch down instead of up because it's easier, uh, but punching up, using the voice that we have and the intellectual resources we have uh, to call attention to these things. And if we need to do so in a in a shaming sort of way or snark on social media or satire or manifesto, you know, I'm all in favor of that. And let's just make sure we aim it in the right direction. One of the places that you are critical of is the trend that's starting. And it, it's one of the places where it's shown up is the Chronicles website. And that is the Dear Student meme. Mm-hmm. And you point to Jesse Strommel's response that he had to that whole dear student. And this is the dear student, you young whippersnappers. I don't don't know how else to describe it. But he talks Mm -hmm. about that it's derisive It uh, when we giggle as part of our work mode, because this is something that's read by tens of thousands of people that right. we do need a safe place to vent like you talk about, but that's that's not the place to do it is on a site like that. And one of the things that he talks about and you talk about is the fact that we have seemed to, in those cases, forgotten that we were once students. And I love your revised Dear Student post. So instead right. of Dear Students, you're really dumb and I'm really smart, <laughs> your, your revised goes, Dear Student, you'll get better at this. So will we faculty, aka former students, and I just love your revision. I mean, I feel really strongly about that. And Jesse's piece 
was was a, a wonderful piece and and i think that dear student series was disappointing for jesse and, and for myself and for others in that you know the chronicles uh, vitae section has some really great stuff it publishes wonderful articles they have some great writers kelly baker is one of them lee scour up some great voices on there and then this piece just sort of it's, it's a very jarring <laughs> sort of discord and and again i just it's a toxic sort of thing, I think, for us to engage in, given the pressures we face as faculty and given the current landscape in higher ed. If we start embracing this, we're taking our attention away from, I think, what's really important. Our students are our allies, not our adversaries in higher ed. Uh, and we need to be more mindful of that, I think. If we are respecting our students in this way, showing them the high regard that we have for them and their potential, then we can sometimes build this fertile soil where we can begin to try to counteract some of what our students may have experienced in their lives of parental figures or, or teachers trying to steer them away from failure into helping them mm-hmm. embrace it a little bit more. What are some ways in your teaching that you either try to help students or other faculty or yourself learn more about the discipline or about themselves through failure? I've tried a lot of different things. Some have worked well, some not so well. They failed, if you will. (laughs) Um, But one of the things that I think it can be as simple as sharing with students times that I've fallen short of what I've tried to do. You know, I was an indifferent student at best my first three years of undergrad. And I made a ton of mistakes uh, and I made decisions and engaged in activities that were certainly not beneficial to my education. And it got to the point where, you know, I had goals that I wanted to accomplish and I was putting myself in a position where those goals would be impossible if I continued down that road. So I share with students, you know, look, I did some of this stuff. I was in college. I get it. You know, I'm not I'm not unaware of, of the range of choices that are out there. And what I'm very aware of is that not all of those choices are going to help get you where you want to go, even if they seem like you know, the better choices at the time. I failed several classes in college, often in the same semester. I used to skip class all the time. My priorities were way out of whack. I almost dropped out. For them, I think, to see that someone who's gotten to the academic position I'm in come from that sort of story, I think, can be helpful. And I tell them, you know, don't do what I did. I mean, you know, I did the experiments. I can give you the results. You don't need to run the same experiment yourself. And it just gives them some more information and maybe it takes sort of abstract you know, sort of very kind of bland, you know, do these sorts of things to be successful. Um, And it makes that tangible. It makes it real. It makes it personal. You know, we like stories. Stories resonate with us. And so I think my story resonates with some students. And I think even as well, letting students or faculty know that failure, failure is okay, that it is part of learning. I think we know that in the abstract, but we don't always acknowledge it on kind of a real day-to-day level. And so I think it's empowering to be able to hear that, to be able to recognize that. And for, for someone who's an instructor to tell students, look, it's not always going to be unicorns and rainbows. It's not always going to be A's. There, you know, there's hard stuff here. Um, and you will you know, maybe experience setbacks or difficulties. That's all right. The question is, what are we going to do to get through to the other side? What about a seemingly small failure of just a student getting a question wrong in a class? I don't know what size classes you typically teach. Well, I teach right now my class sizes are anywhere from 10 to 30. I teach at a small liberal arts school. In the past, I've taught lecture sections of 500 and just about everything in between. Mm -hmm. So I've got experience in multiple class sizes. My classes tend to be pretty discussion-based, and so, yeah, there are a lot of times where a student will have an answer to a question that I ask that is wrong, uh, you know, or at least 
not optimal, maybe we can put it that way, that they're getting there, but maybe aren't quite there yet. And I think sort of reframing that is, okay, you know, that's, that's maybe, that's one answer here, but, and then turning a question back, okay, well, have you thought about this instead? And then throwing that open in the class, you know, so a question, following an answer with another question, rather than saying, oh, no, 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 you know, Mm -hmm. you don't want to, you don't want to close off a conversation, I think. Um, It's, it's hard enough to get a good discussion going sometimes without closing it off if somebody throws an answer out there that, that doesn't quite work. I've had students compliment me on that before that it's a funny compliment. You do a really good job of telling someone they're wrong without making them feel stupid. Oh, that's good. But right. but I do think it is one of those things where because because the other thing students really don't like is when they're not told that the answer is wrong or the other person right. isn't told because that doesn't mm-hmm. help the person who said it or the other people who heard it too. And I think sometimes there's this sense of tentativeness that, oh, I don't want to insult them and this isn't going to go well, but turning around right. to a question is really a smart approach. No, I think there is an art to that, that, you know, letting someone know they're wrong without telling them they're wrong, you know, helping guide or move them in another direction and then engaging the rest of the class and perhaps helping them do that too, make it a collaborative process. You know, I think sometimes, you know, people who tend to be very critical of students and, oh, they don't know stuff and they should have the consequences of not studying because they never study, you know, all that kind of thing. You know, they look at uh, an attitude like the one that I'm espousing and say, well, you're really just, you want this touchy-feely, new-agey classroom where anything goes and nobody's wrong and everybody gets a participation trophy and you all sit around and sing kumbaya, period. And, you know, that's not it at all. People are wrong. I'm wrong all the time, right? Mm-hmm. I don't see what the point is in not acknowledging that and not creating spaces where that can happen, but not derail what you're trying to do in the classroom. I think you can have academic rigor. In fact, I think you can have better academic rigor if you respect students as colleagues in a mutual scholarly enterprise. And I actually use that phrase a lot. You know, we're we're engaged together in this life of the mind and the work that we're doing. I'm going to treat you like that and I want you to treat each other and me like that. And then you can have some very good, rigorous, high-level analytical discussions and other classroom activities because it comes from a place of trust where people know that it's okay to take risks and it's okay to maybe fall short. What are some things that you do at the beginning of the class to try to set up that environment? And specifically, you have written some about your policy of not necessarily having a policy around technology in the classroom, but I'm sure you have other ways too. I let them know that, you know, I don't have a, a cell phone policy because I think it's important to be able to be decision literate, as I call it. You know, you've got this powerful machine that can do all sorts of things. We're going to use it in class in our work. You want to look something up or go online and pull down a document that we're talking about. We do a lot of source analysis in my class, for example. If you want to check Wikipedia for some larger context on a name or uh, an event that we're talking about, great. Um, But you have to know, you have to be able to decide when it's appropriate to use this device and when it isn't. And you can only really learn that by experience. And so if I tell my students, you know, put all your cell phones away and never use these devices, I'm creating an environment that they'll never experience when they get out of college. They'll be in meetings, they'll be in, in situations where they're going to have to decide, do I, you know, do I give into the temptation to go on to Twitter or do I focus in on the work at hand? And if I don't give them opportunities to practice that from first year brand new students all the way up through seniors, then they're not going to have developed those skills. In what ways then do you attempt or do you attempt to guide them back when they have made what you would constitute the wrong decision and they are on Twitter and it's not part of the class or or what have you? 
Well, one of the things that I share with them, you know, there is research out there that talks about how device usage or, you know, if a student's on Facebook during during um, a, a discussion, for example, the real damage comes from the distraction for the students around her or him. So when I share that research up front, the implication, and, and I make it very clear, is, you know, if you've made the decision to do this, not only are you missing something, but you're also stealing everybody else's attention around you. You're stealing their time. That, I think, builds some accountability where students haven't really thought about it before. And when they see this research, that shows the real distraction that occurs around a student who's using a device or surfing on, on Twitter or whatever. That all of a sudden sort of reframes the consequences into, well, I've upset Dr. Gannon to, okay, I'm kind of screwing my classmates here. And I think that that can be a powerful way to reframe the conversation. Will you say something to them and confront them if it's still happening? I do. I do. I try to do it. You know, again, a lot of the times we're in discussion or I do team-based learning in one of my classes. So a lot of, you know, they're with their teams doing work. And I'll, you know, if I see someone on the cell phone and I go over and I say, what you checking on? Or, you know, what you, what you, what you looking up? If they're not checking on or looking up something, they tend to just kind of put it away and very sheepishly. And usually I only have to do that once. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I do it casually and I do it so it doesn't draw attention while everybody else is engaged in work. And then I build in other things. You know, if I'm doing group work, I have groups assess themselves. Each member of a group assesses their teammates as well as their own contributions to the group. And then I average those, you know, they, they give a point value to it. They grade themselves and their team. I average those and those are actually class points that are part of their grade. So there are a number of ways I've built these expectations into the course that it incentivizes them to be collaborative, to be focused, and to be on task. Now, not every student is, you know, always going to be doing the right thing on their technology. You know, that's, have, I, have I stopped, you know, texting back and forth? No. But or have we ever stopped every student from, you know, staring out the window or staring off into space or, you know, doing other homework in class? Um, you know, if you try to shoot for 100% of that all the time, it's just unrealistic. Mm -hmm. But... You know, I think I've been able to create an environment where students are clear what the expectations are, and it doesn't take much to nudge them back towards it. I still remember so vividly in elementary school, it was all about passing notes. And of course, we even would have mailboxes on our own desks. You know, that people could pass oh, right, notes. Yeah. And then there and were you these... like me, check yes, check <laughs> no, yeah. And then there were these things that... Oh, I wish I could. They're, they're actually called different things in different regions of the country. And I even forgot what any of the names are, but you fold up the piece of paper and then it's like little triangles that you move back and forth with your oh, index yeah. finger and your pointer finger. And so that mm -hmm. you could figure out, you know, who you were going to marry or how many kids you were going to have. Right, stuff. right. And I remember like, those vividly. And, you know, I, I was a military brat, so we moved around a lot. And in every elementary school I went to, and I went to like five, those things were there. Yeah, and then there was this, we called them slam books out here in California, but then you'd fill out this whole diary of all your answers to different questions. And that was, you were always number seven throughout the entire book. And then someone else was number eight throughout the entire book. And then you'd have mm. your little book of all the information. So it's not right. like time wasting didn't exist before the internet. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. I think probably is there some better time wasters. In fact, I have to just mention this real quick. I, I... I do an aerobics class and there's a really fun song that's called Shut Up and Dance. And they mm -hmm. did a mashup of all these dance scenes from everything from the sound of music to Footloose to, oh gosh, what was the other big, uh, uh, oh my goodness. I'm losing my 80s movies references. 
oh, <laughs> on no. the top of my tongue. But I'm going to put that That's in the show notes just in case someone needs a little bit of an upper. <laughs> the internet has been depressing to me this last week, so I needed right. that. <laughs> so fun. But lots of ways we could waste our time before technology. And well, technology. we all know the internet was created for cat pictures and everything yes. else is secondary. So. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so anything else we should talk about before we go to recommendations as it relates to creating this culture of respect for our students? Well, I, you know, the one thing I would mention is, again, you know, some of the pushback I get when I talk about this is, you know, I'll have people tell me, well, you just don't understand, you know, you're, you, you know, we need to have control in the classroom. We need to, you know, we need to, to teach them all this content. And if they don't learn it here, they'll never learn it. And if they don't learn about it in my class, they're going to go through life being ignorant about whatever subject it is. And then Western civilization will collapse. It'll be anarchy, dogs and cats living together, all, you know, and it's easy to get carried away with that. You know, as you mentioned before, there's a power dynamic um, and it is about control and it's very scary to give up control. And the way we're trained in graduate school is, you know, pursue an argument relentlessly, defend it against all comers and keep control over it. Right. And so now we're supposed to go collaborate with other people as academics and, you know, what could go wrong. So, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, I think it's very much a part of our, our academic culture. And what I'm really arguing for is a collaborative attitude where, you know, students are colleagues, you know, maybe not equal colleagues. They're not at a mastery level like we are, but they are on the same journey that we are. They have the same goals that we do to make this a good, successful class. You know, the, the key is to make sure that we all talk about a good, successful class meeting the same sort of thing. And they need to be on board for that. So, you know, I'm not advocating, you know, your your lecture class should be a commune and, you know, we'll have a love in. But what it should be is a, a space to create, a space to learn, a space to innovate. And if you go in armed for combat, that's what you're going to get. So I think it's, it requires a lot of reflection on our part and some unlearning of some habits that maybe we didn't realize that we had learned uh, to be able to get at that and, and to success, you know, to be successful, reflective practitioners. And there are some ways to have even more influence than when we only rely on our ability to influence through power. When we can influence Absolutely. through other ways, it's incredible because as you described earlier, then I'm not the police, you know, I'm not the law enforcement in a classroom. That's not my role. That's a really hard role to play at a college level. Then right. I mean, it's, I imagine it's hard to play at any time. My kids are young. And so at preschool, mm -hmm. it's also very hard if that's your only method of influencing preschoolers yeah. is through law enforcement. But if and we can, not, I didn't, you know, I didn't go to grad school to be cell phone cop. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I didn't go to grad school to be the tone police or the behavior police. And, you know, if you, if you complain about students that who are acting immature in the sense that they're not acting as adults, you know, autonomous intellectual folks, but you treat them like they are immature mm -hmm. and expect them to be immature. Well, you, you've created, I think the, the conditions for, you know, you have shown them, you know, it's not what you say, it's what you do. So you've shown them what you expect them to be. So if you have a draconian policy where it's, you know, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, you know, they, they know what you think of them, or at least they have a pretty clear indication yeah. of that. And they're going to act accordingly, I think. Um, so, mm -hmm. you know, what are we conveying? What kind of environment, what kind of space are we creating with our students? Uh, not just by policies, but by actions. You know, again, if, if the only tool you have is a hammer, every problem's a nail. Well, you know, I think students are pretty attuned to that as well. Mm-hmm. 
we're going to move on to the recommendation segment. And mine is to go check out your blog. I don't do this often, but it's so good. And I really don't want people to miss it. So if you go to teachinginhighered.com slash 52, I have a link to Kevin's blog in the recommendations segment. And then also a couple of articles that might be a good place to get started if you like this topic of creating more respect for our students. And just thank you so much for all the writing that you're doing. And I love to see it spreading and, and getting a lot of traction on Twitter. That's been fun. Well, thanks. I appreciate it. The blog has been a great space for me to to work a lot of these ideas out and, and to get a lot of great feedback and conversation about it. So it's been really helpful for me as, a, as both a teacher and a writer. So I appreciate the, the shout out. You're welcome. And what recommendations do you have for people listening? Well, in terms of some of the reading that I've been doing in my faculty developer role lately, um, you know, kind of foundational books here. Um, and I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a history professor. I'm a total dork. So, of course, I'm going to recommend books because I'm, you know, I'm an absolute bibliophile. Um, but one of the books that's had the most influence on my approach um, is by Mary Ellen Weimer, uh, W-E-I-M-E-R, called Learner-Centered Teaching. Um, and it's just, it's a fantastic book. It's one of those books that when I read it the first time, it just, it, it, it affirmed a lot of what I was doing and what I was thinking. It affirmed a lot of the directions I wanted to move in. And she just articulated it so well that, you know, I'm, I'm reading it and, oh yeah, that's absolutely, oh man, she said that great. You know, so it, it really resonated with me. Um, and, and just has a, it's a good mix of kind of theory and practice, um, that I would certainly recommend. Uh, and then anything by Stephen Brookfield, um, who, is a, a very you know critically engaged and reflective scholar. He's been writing for 20 or 30 years um, in the area of teaching and learning, um, and he wrote a book with Stephen Preskill called "Discussion as a Way of Teaching" um, that has some really good concrete stuff to kind of create the type of environment where students are, you know, collaborators and and where it's safe to take risks and it's safe to to critically think about you know, assumptions and, and, and things that students have brought with them into the classroom. It's very important to create that environment. So, so uh, Brookfield and Preskill's discussion as a way of teaching, I think, is a really good text to, to help get started with that. And we back on episode 15, I was able to interview him about discussion as a way of teaching. And I couldn't right. believe, I mean, that just... I was naive. I was young. I didn't know any better. It's amazing <laughs> how much that he could get into 30 yeah. minutes of just the richness. It, I mean, to me, I, I had not realized the richness with which he could talk about discussion. I mean, it's just mm -hmm. incredibly powerful. So if people haven't been listening to these episodes for that long, episode 15 is one of the ones I say, go back and listen to that one is incredible episode. Yeah, I saw that on your page and I've got it bookmarked because his book, The Skillful Teacher is also a really good sort of personal growth and development book. Uh, that's really had a big influence on me too. He's uh, probably one of my favorite writers in teaching and learning. He's just got such a range of insights. Yeah, I didn't know a lot about him and someone else had recommended him being on the show and he was gracious and, and agreed and it's been fun. He, The skillful teacher, I, I'm not sure if I'm remembering this right. It might be being rewritten right now. I yeah, I think up. it is. I okay. think he's working on a new edition of it. Yeah, because I was going to have him back on the show when it comes out and he already agreed to that. So that's the good news. Awesome. Watching for that well, then I'll, I'll tune in. Well, thank you so much for being on the show and, and this important idea of having more respect for our students. And what I love, Kevin, about what you've said throughout today's episode is that it isn't something that we're done and we can just check the box and move on, but a continued discipline we need to be cultivating in ourselves. So thank you for challenging me and for everyone listening. Well, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. 
Thanks again to Kevin for being a guest on this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. As always, if you'd like to comment on the episode or start a dialogue with Kevin or myself, you can do so at teachinginhighered.com slash 52. If you'd like to subscribe to the weekly update where you'll automatically get one email, no more, every week with a combination of the show notes with all the links of the things we talked about, plus a article about teaching or productivity, you can do that at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. And one of the ways you can help people discover the show is by whatever service you use to listen by either rating the show or giving it a review. The, their algorithms that just helps bring it more to the attention of other people who might have an interest in teaching in higher ed. Thanks in advance for considering doing that. And I will see you next time.